Hello, everybody. It's Clay. I am very excited about today's show, but I wanted to pop in here and give you a little bit of context for it. It's between Brad and myself. We were unfortunately without Steve, so we decided to use it as an excuse to go deep on one of our favorite books, a book we have referenced a number of times on the show already, called Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart by Mark Epstein. Mark Epstein is a psychiatrist and a longtime Buddhist practitioner, so there's a lot in the book and in our discussion today about Buddhism, meditation, psychology, and maybe you're thinking that all sounds very wonderful and exciting. I hope you are thinking that. But maybe you're thinking, oh God, the adult has left the room, Clay and Brad are in charge, and here they are back on their spirituality and philosophy bullshit. That might be what Steve is thinking right about now. And if you're in that camp, I would just urge you to give the episode a shot because I think Brad and I did a good job of bringing it back to the topic we are always talking about on the show in one way or another, which is performance and how the ideas and thoughts in Epstein's book have helped us with our physical practice and our mental health. And really the reason we keep coming back to this book and have found it helpful is because I think it has allowed us and hopefully by hearing us discuss it will allow you to be a bit more psychologically settled and a little less reactive and just a bit more at ease in the world, which I think is something that, frankly, we are all striving for. So even if you've never heard of the book or these sound like topics that you may not usually be inclined to be interested in, I would say just give it a listen. Give it a chance because I think it's really good. I had a lot of fun doing it. I think Brad did too. And I hope you guys have a lot of fun listening to it. That's it. That's my preamble. Thank you for listening. On to the show. So what are we going to do without Steve? Are we going to avoid science and go straight into uh, philosophy today? I thought we could do deadlifts. I thought we could just do a whole podcast on deadlifts. Oh, my, my ears just perked up. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, even though I do, I do occasionally deadlift more than Steve, uh, probably about uh, one-fifth of the weight of what you deadlift. And I want to be clear, I wasn't saying I deadlift more weight than Steve. I was just saying I deadlift more often than Steve. I thought we could go deep on one of our favorite books, Brad. One of our like original friendship touch points, I feel like, which is Mark guess. Epstein. Yeah, go for it. Well, you just spoiled it. But yes, that was what I was going to guess. Mark Epstein going to pieces without falling apart. Real quick on deadlifting. I deadlift <laughs> about four Magnuses now. Wow. Hey, like his body weight? Yeah, just about. I mean, I'm putting him at I'm putting him at like 125. Okay, all right. So four magnuses, but it's 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 a unit of deadlifting as a magnus. Wow, I love that. All right, four magnuses, five hundo. Good for you. Yeah, that's where I'm at. All right, going to pieces without falling apart. If I go up and deadlift anymore, this is going to be like a a book <laughs> for my orthopedic surgeon. Yes, yes. So the subtitle of the book is A Buddhist Perspective on Wholeness, Lessons from Meditation and Psychotherapy. And Mark Epstein is a doctor, he's a psychiatrist, um, but he's also very well-versed in Buddhism. And so he sort of joins the Western psycho psychological approach with the Eastern uh, wisdom. And maybe you're interested in therapy, or maybe you're in therapy, or maybe you're interested in Buddhism or meditation or spirituality, or maybe you're not interested in any of those things. But I think this will still be 
a resonant conversation for you because um, the book resonated so deeply with Brad and I, and I think that suggests that it gets at something um, universal to us and probably to you guys as well. And I'm going to try to articulate a little bit about what that is if you don't want to jump in and, and say anything yet, Brad, about the book and your experience with it. No, go for it, Clay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a little bit of armchair psychologist on you, Brad. This is definitely describes my experience, but I'm guessing it somewhat describes your experience as well, which is we are very type A. We can be pretty bit, pretty obsessive and controlling. And so we live a lot in our heads, like trying to control the world around us. And I think that's a very natural American Western approach to things, right? This idea of like having a strong sense of self and exerting yourself on the world and controlling the world around you. And the dichotomy that is useful here that Brad's talked about before and that Mark Epstein brings up in the book is the being doing dichotomy. And so we're very good in the West at doing, and that's all like what you'd think of as conventional ego stuff. So working and uh, progressing and growing and sort of on this linear, this path of linear development. And I think I certainly have felt like that was most of my life up until I discovered uh, things like this book. But the problem with that is that it doesn't, is that it sort of hinders us from the other side of the, the coin, which is being. And there are so many things in our life that come out of just being able to be and be still and not necessarily always be worried about progress and growing and developing things like love and connection and creativity. So I'll put, I'll start there. Um, I have some like quotes and passages we can react to, Brad, but I'm just curious how you would first respond to or react to what I laid out there. I'd agree with just about everything that you said. It reminds me of Nietzsche's will to power being a very Western philosophical idea and approach, which is that what makes us a human is the ability to have an idea and then to enact it. And that's a really good, important thing. And we want to have a will to power. However, when that's the only way that you know how to go about living in the world, it can become exhausting. And if during periods of open space, that mind just goes racing because it doesn't know what to do in the open space, sometimes people, myself included, want to have a little bit more ease. Um, the metaphor that I have adopted for this, I first heard it from Will Cabot Zinn, who is John Cabot Zinn very famous kind of secular scientific meditation teacher in the West. So his son, Will, often talks about having a canvas with all kinds of paint on it. And the paint is our experiences in the world, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our actions, our successes, our failures, our gain, our loss, on and on. That's all paint on the canvas. But he says that there's still a canvas. And that canvas is our essential being. It's how Will thinks about it. And I think a lot of this book helps you connect to that essential being, 
And without telegraphing too much about the book, I think the going to pieces is the canvas. And then the without falling apart is having a sense of your essential being that's always there. It cannot fall apart if you connect with it. Yeah, I like that. And there's so many good metaphors, I feel like, in Buddhism for the same idea, right? The few that I like, there's one where it's you're in a movie theater and you forget that you're watching the movie. You get so invested in what's happening on the screen. You think you're actually in the movie. And if you can get a little, it's like what we talked about in a recent podcast, you get a little space between your thought and your reaction to it. You can actually step back and realize like, oh, I don't have to be so lost in the thing. Where did, the other, where did you first hear that metaphor? Because I had that in groundedness. I thought that was mine. Maybe it is. I took maybe it right from you. There you go. <laughs> but the other one I like, and I think this is from Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, who's a, a very famous Buddhist monk, is the idea of, this is what really first got me. In Buddhism, I went to a bookstore. I picked up The Miracle of Mindfulness, and I read it. And I he uses this metaphor of being like, your thoughts are like a waterfall. And if you're just standing under them all the time, they're so loud. And you're just under a torrent, like incessant noise and thunder and and what meditation does or, any, you know, I don't want to be dogmatic about this. A lot of different types of spiritualities, anything that takes you outside yourself allows you to step back. Like there's often a space behind a waterfall. If you've ever gone on a hike and gone behind one where you can be behind the waterfall and you see it and you're not getting crushed by it. And I think that's sort of similar to the canvas paint analogy that you use, Brad. Yeah, exactly. I love that. Yeah. So, I mean, one passage here that I think might be useful and goes into what we're talking about that gets at this being-doing dichotomy is Epstein writes, one of the most important tasks of adulthood is to discover or rediscover the ability to lose oneself. The Chinese expression for orgasm, having a high tide, describes this quite effectively. In a high tide, everything is floating. The self is submerged or dissolved. There is no longer any foothold or point of reference, but it is not chaos. When we are afraid to relax the mind's vigilance, we tend to equate this floating with drowning and we start to founder. In this fear, we destroy our capacity to discover ourselves in a new way. We doom ourselves to a perpetual hardening of character, which we imagine is sanity, but which comes to imprison us. Our shoulders get more and more tense. So like sort of this idea that when we're faced, it's a lot of what's in master change too, right? It's like when we're faced with uncertainty or fear or not knowing what move to make next, um, you know, I think about like if you're unemployed, you lose a job, not knowing what to do next, and we get really, really tight, we actually constrict ourselves and don't allow ourselves to be in a way to see what possibilities might open to us or how we might navigate this, this change in a creative and playful way. Yeah, I think that's right. The where I go when I first hear that quote, though, and particularly how in some traditions of mindfulness, nirvana, or like if there is a goal, the ultimate goal of meditation is represented by orgasm, which is just like a total loss of your sense of self. Um, I go back to like peak performance in flow states. So Mm -hmm. to me, what he's also talking about is if you're too caught up in your own head or in ego and concerns about self and concerns about how am I performing success or failure, well, one, when you have sex, it's not going to be very good. Two, when you're on the basketball court or you're trying to pace a marathon or you're trying to get into the zone writing or you're public speaking or you encounter um, a patient for the first time as a psychiatrist or you're a surgeon on and on and on, 
we have orgasmic experiences when we're completely in the zone and our thoughts and our feelings about ourselves are not getting in the way. We are just one with the thing that we're doing. Flow, excellence, quality, whatever you want to call it. That is so separate from when we're self-conscious and trying to do those same things. In in writing, this happens all the time. If I am self-conscious while I am writing, if I am thinking about what I am writing, I get stuck and the writing's not good. If I stop thinking about what I'm writing and I am just writing, oh, those are the days to savor. So I think what's interesting about this is we can start in like, you know, grounded in Buddhism, a very specific spiritual practice and get so esoteric as to talk about orgasm. But what this is really about to me is allowing yourself to enter the zone. And to your point, this can happen with particular activities or it's just enter the zone of life. And I think two times we get really constricted are with particular activities when we really care deeply about the outcome. We often try to force it and we end up getting in our own way instead of relaxing into the moment. Or when we're faced with challenge, we try to over control and we constrict ourselves and our opportunities and we get on a road instead of a path to use master of change language. And we just like try to get from here to there as efficiently and as fast as possible. When if we would just loosen a little bit, perhaps we'd be open to more opportunity. Yes, I love this. So I love this because there's a point in this book where he talks about how if you are um, someone who is riding horses, like you're doing equestrianism, I'm not sure if that's the proper verbiage, but you're a horse rider. You need to have soft eyes. Like when you're going up to these obstacles, you can't, um, you don't want to concentrate too hard. You want to sort of be able to see everything around you, right? It's like driving a car. They don't tell you not to like look straight in front of you, but to look down the road. And this, I like this because it, for me, it relates to performance and specifically it relates to when I was at GQ, I was lucky enough to get to write a piece on Patrick Mahomes, who's the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs and the reigning NFL MVP. And I spoke to his coach, Andy Reid, and I asked him to describe Mahomes to me. And he said he has loose eyes, which is the exact same phrase. Well, it's not the exact same. It's loose eyes versus soft eyes that Epstein uses. And like that is such an interesting thing. Basically what you're saying, Brad, like the idea of performing our best, we need to be not holding so tight, right? We need to be willing to work with things as they come. And if you watch Patrick Mahomes play or you watch someone like Steph Curry, What's so fun about them is that they are like kind of cool in the chaos. They just like see, they allow whatever unfolds and then they react or they respond to it in a way that's very playful and creative. And it's like, it's like magic when you watch that. It's like poetry in motion, you know? You have to get really good at the thing though to get to that level. Yeah. So the, the framework that I like to use for this is the four levels of competence. It's developed in the 1970s. Um, by uh, a team of researchers. And the first level is unconscious incompetence. So you don't know that you don't know what you're doing. The second level is conscious incompetence. So you know that you don't know what you're doing. The third level is conscious competence. So you know what you're doing and you're thinking about it. And then the fourth level is unconscious competence when you just let go and enter the zone. So I think part of what allows... Steph Curry or Patrick Mahomes to let go and enter the zone is that they've done so much work refining and getting to that point where then they can get out of their own way. Um, another example is the athlete that is 
so attached to their GPS watch or their heart rate. To me, that's an example of conscious competence. It often really matters if you're first learning like how to pace a marathon or a half marathon or what a certain effort feels like. And you want to be attached to that. It's really guiding you. It's giving you good information. But at a certain point, maybe it's after a year, maybe it's after three years, you probably want to put that device down because that device might be the very thing that's keeping you from being in a flow state. And then we can all go back to high school and thinking about intimate relationships and just how like at first you have no idea what you're doing. And then like you kind of know that you don't know what you're doing. And then you know that you know what you're doing, but you're still overthinking it. And eventually you just get into a point with an intimate relationship where you can relax into the relationship and it starts to feel good. And this is true for intimate relationships with other people, but I really think like excellence in flow is just intimacy with a craft. It's like getting to know a craft so well. One of my other favorite thinkers at the intersection of performance and spirituality is George Leonard, who wrote the book Mastery. And he talks about peak performance, not as a singular event, not as lightning striking and you're suddenly in the zone, but as an easy chair that you groove into over years. So you first sit in it and it doesn't feel great and it gets scratched up and it gets worn. And after 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, it's just the easy chair that you just know all the grooves and that's peak performance. So I just think it's this fascinating paradox because in spirituality, they talk about the spiritual bypass, which is like you read a book like this, so you meditate once and you start walking around with like really big eyes and looking at everybody like a deer in the headlights and thinking you've become enlightened. And I think generally speaking, that's bullshit. I think that enlightenment takes a ton of freaking work, a ton of conscious competence, and before that, conscious incompetence, and only then do you groove in to loose eyes, zanshen, relaxed awareness, whatever it is you want to call it. This is Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Zen in the Art of Archery, it's Patrick Mahone's winning a Super Bowl, it is Euro Dreams of Sushi, on and on and on. And I think what's important maybe to cap this off, to cap off my soliloquy here, is know where you're at on those level of competence. And you can't fast forward it. You have to put in the work. But if you've been putting in the work, at a certain point, you have to have the confidence to leave behind all the bumpers and guardrails and just enter the zone. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Yeah, that was so wonderfully put. And I love the four levels of competence because it actually relates back to Epstein in a fun way. Because one of the things Epstein does in his book is he compares psychotherapy with meditation. And his point is that psychotherapy is very much about building up the self, right? It's about learning about your habits and tendencies, which is which is good in your conditioning so that you don't have to be owned by it. So you don't have to act automatically. You can actually have autonomy over who you are, but it is very much about excavating the self and reifying the self, like building up your own story, understanding your stories and meditation or Buddhism is sort of a loss of self. And if you think of it on the four levels of competency, I almost think we start uh, unconscious incompetence. If you start doing self-work like therapy you can get to conscious incompetence and maybe uh, conscious competence. But I think to finally get to unconscious competence, that's where Epstein would say you have to go into something that allows you to lose the self. Because if you get to conscious competence and you're just all the time thinking, like you said, it literally self-consciousness, Brad, you can't ever get to that flow state. And so I think that is how Epstein's idea 
ideas about psychotherapy and Buddhism map right onto the four levels of competency. I think that's right. Question for you is, do you think it's attainable to get into a flow state just of life? Because I think that's what Epstein's pointing towards, whereas I find it much more realistic to have certain domains in your life, certain activities where you can get into a flow state. Like you mean just like existing in the world and constantly yeah. being there? Like I once had a meditation teacher, someone who whom we both know, I won't I won't name any names um to protect his privacy, but really a wonderful person who once told me like he can like just feel like at peace in um in the zone when he's scooping his cat's litter. And I'm like, I don't think I'm ever going to get there. Like, you know, if I can feel that like when I'm writing or like maybe like when I'm playing basketball with my kids, when I'm getting like into it with my wife, when I'm in the gym, like on a really big set, like that's enough. But the transition times, man, the short drives, the showers, the walking from the office to the recording studio, my mind, it's just full. Mm. Like I, I just, that's who I am, I think. And and I've learned to stop fighting that and just to let it be. Well, it sounds like there you go. You're doing like you're you're sort of learning how to trying not to try in a way. But I also get there with activity, and I certainly am not walking through the world in any sort of state of enlightenment or nirvana. But the thing that I've noticed that has changed in my life, my everyday sort of mundane existence since I've been meditating for about seven years now, is there are moments where I'll stop on a street corner. And I'll catch a glimpse of like, and this sounds so corny, but it's true. Like you'll catch, see the leaves falling in the sunlight and there is a moment. It's not Nirvana in any way, shape or form, but there's a moment of like, oh, this is, I'm actually alive to this moment in the world. And I'm not so lost in my thoughts that this sort of encounter with the earth is, is like, can't touch me. Like I'm not guarding myself by being caught in my own neuroses. I actually experienced this. And that wasn't something that ever happened to me before I discovered meditation, but it's, it's like a pocket. It's there for like five seconds and then it's gone. It's not continuous. I will get in a flow state sometimes if I'm interviewing somebody or playing basketball or on a run. But I do notice that these, there are these little glimpses, um, in the everyday. And like, that is such a magical thing, even if it's brief that it keeps me coming back to the practice. Ooh, I like that. Um, a quick a quick tangent, just because it sounds like in this episode, what we're doing is just a lot of like using words and metaphors to describe experiences and listeners, hopefully that that's helpful. We're both writers, so that's what we do. It's very helpful for us. But on the note of protection, one of my best friends sent me this article that talked about essentially like tragic optimism. That's what I called it in Master of Change based on Viktor Frankl's work. And she's like, this is like such a good way to think about it. And the writer used the metaphor of a couch and like people buy like a beautiful leather couch and it comes in a plastic cover. And I guess a lot of people keep the plastic cover on the couch so that like it maintains its beautiful leather but then they don't really get to sit on the beautiful couch. And it was a metaphor for like your heart and like how much easier in some ways it is to like put plastic wrap around your heart so that like you're not open to the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows and to the big wins and the, the tough defeats. But how, why, why have this couch that we all have? Like why have this big heart if you can't expose it to the world 
and let it gain texture. But exposing it to the world is really hard. Uh, it's like the cost of caring. It's something that I've written about quite a bit is like, don't, it's tempting to be the kid in middle school gym class that was too cool to try. And the reason that he or she, normally he, was too cool to try is because if he lost, he'd be vulnerable. And I just wonder like how often we protect ourselves from hurt like because we have plastic around whatever it is that we're trying to protect. So it's just another like really nice metaphor for this sort of thing. Yeah. No, it's great. And it's at, at towards the end of the book, Epstein talks about he says the central concept of this book um is in coping with the world, we come to identify only with our compensatory selves and our reactive minds. We build up ourselves out of our defenses, but then come to be imprisoned by them. This leaves us feeling dissatisfied, irritable, and cut off. Um, it gives us a bigger and better self, but not a truer or happier one. It only exacerbates the problem. Like, yeah, it's that's you know, the plastic. We, yeah, exactly. It's the plastic. It's exactly right. It's the guy who, uh, like you said, is too cool in gym class, or the guy who never commits because to have to commit to something, it might explode. And then, you know, it that would be soul crushing or heartbreaking. I might be projecting on that one. Um, but it's getting a dog and allowing yourself to really love a dog. Like yeah, every time yeah. you get a dog and you fall in love with the dog, you're just setting yourself up for massive heartbreak. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're taking the plastic off, but, but I firmly believe that like the goal of life is texture, not happiness. I was just talking about this with someone. And if the goal of life is happiness, you would never commit to a relationship. You would never have kids. You would never get a dog. You would never really care deeply about anything because when you care deeply about something, it changes and you become frustrated period. Yeah. Yeah. But if the goal of life is texture or like brotherly love or communion or sisterly love, then I think you tear that plastic off and you gain texture. And when things are really hard and you feel like you can't go on, then you connect to others and you let them hold and support you. And I think if you center or life around that, like that's it. Yeah. And it is a mindset shift, but I think it's an important one. It's like if you release from the goal of happiness I think things really start to open up in a big way and you realize and you start to practice acceptance around the pain that is just the other side of joy and love. In Buddhism, it's the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Um, and you don't get one without the other. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's Rilke and Freud. I cover this in the intro to master of change. I don't know if you remember this part, like on, on the walk in Rilke, like, you know, the poet of unrequited love just like can't allow himself to, admire the flowers. Yeah. Freud is essentially like, I'm going to, I'm going to update the language for if you and I were on a walk, like, dude, these are beautiful flowers. Like, why are you so, why are you so bitter and frustrated? And Rilke's like, because by next week, these flowers will have wilted and died. And Freud's like, so you're not going to let yourself enjoy them. And Rilke's like, no, I don't even want to look at them. And Freud's like, come on, man. Like you're, you're, you got plastic, take off the plastic. And I just think about that all the time because like, we're all guilty of it. Myself first and foremost is like when we put on plastic. But that's Buddhism in a nutshell, right? It's the, we see the flowers and we have two reactions to it. One is we, it, it, we see the flowers and we have that reaction of, oh, these are going to be gone. And so two things happen. Either we get so attached to like it's attachment or aversion. We get a aversion. We get 
attached to the idea of the flower. We never want it to go away and we're not good with change. We're not okay with the fact that it's going to expire or die. Or we say, I don't want to look at that flower because I I don't want to be brought face to face with my own mortality. And the fact that this flower is going to disappear signifies something about the fact that I'm going to disappear. And that's like the whole... That's Buddhism right there, right? I think it's it's such an interesting... You're holding both things at once, non-dual yes. thinking. Yes. And to go back to getting a dog, I think that is the... That sort of goes back to the subtitle, going to pieces... Or sorry, the title, which is going to pieces without falling apart. You have to take the plastic off. You have to get the dog. The dog is going to die. I mean, substitute any sad event here for the dog the dying. You're going to go to pieces... But you're not going to fall apart because if you have practice in being, then you can just sit in the feelings, whatever they are, however uncomfortable they are, however emotionally distressing they are, and you're not going to fall apart. And that, I think, is ultimately what Epstein is getting at, is we need some sort of practice of being with whatever arises, with whatever happens in the everyday unfolding that is not something we control so that we can just practice being with that feeling because that's what a lot of life is. It's like, we don't know what's happening. It's out of our control. And when something happens, it's difficult. We need to have a capacity to, to be with that. Reconnecting with the canvas. Yeah. 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 Because the, the dog dying is just a big splotch of paint in a place that you don't want it. And that is texture. But if you're just the paint and you're, you got no canvas, you have no ground it's a lot harder than if you can connect with the canvas, even with just one or 2% of yourself and just say like, all right, you know, this is what I signed up for. But like, I've got, I, I was going to say, I've got the canvas, but like, I am the canvas. I am the paint. I am the hurt. I am the loss. I am the love that I had for this animal, for this job, for this person, for this championship that I won, for this promotion that I thought I was going to get, whatever it is you care deeply about. I'm not here to judge. You pick your things. You are the paint, but you're also the canvas. And I think what Epstein does so well in this book is he says that in the West, we over-identify with the paint and we completely forget about the canvas. Yeah. Yeah, it's that idea, right, that we don't... goes back to identity in a way. This is really like a philosophy is happening episode. We really need like a reggaeton horn for when for when philosophy is happening. It's like bah, 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 philosophy is happening. I told <laughs> I, you know I, you heard what I said. I, I guess you didn't hear. Maybe you heard it too closely. That Steve's not here. We're going to probably get into philosophy. Exactly, I had no idea exactly. we were actually going to get into philosophy. <laughs> I thought we were going to talk about deadlifts. <laughs> but it goes back to the idea that not in the same way you don't want to identify too much with your work or anything like that, you don't want to identify too closely with your feelings. It's the same sort of like trying to unhook yourself from whatever comes up, if that makes sense. Um, Without resisting it. Yeah, yeah. One other thing Winnicott gets at in here that I found, sorry, not Winnicott. One other thing that Epstein gets at in here is a thought from Winnicott um, that I have found unbelievably helpful in navigating anxiety which is he makes this very subtle point that we get so lost in our thinking mind. This relates back to what we were just talking about too. We get so lost in our own torrent waterfall of thoughts that we don't realize that the mind is actually not for thinking. It's for tolerance, which is sort of a weird idea. But the idea is that the brain is a container for all feelings and sensations and our job is not to try to control what comes into the container, but to have tolerance for whatever that is. And for me, that has been like such a balm 
when I've had anxiety because there's like, I want the anxious thought to go away or I can control this anxiety. But instead of thinking about, I want to control what's going into the container, it's more about zooming out and being like, this is what's in the container right now. And at some point, just like a waterfall, it'll cycle out and something new will come in, but you just have to let it be here for a little while. Um, I feel like and, I'm continuing to plug my own book and um <laughs> it's it's not a very Buddhist thing to do. So that just goes to show that I'm I'm an armchair Buddhist at best. Uh but this reminds me of the equation that I propose where suffering equals pain times resistance. Yeah. Yeah. So you have an anxious thought or a depressive thought or feeling, and that's pain. It's gonna be painful regardless. But if you try to make it go away or you judge it as bad yeah, or you try to push against it, that's resistance. So now your suffering's going up because it's pain times resistance. Whereas if you can take the Winnicott approach and just hold it in the container, then it's just pain. Yeah. So you have an anxious thought that we're going to score as a four. And you are very, very skilled at just letting it be there. Well, four times one is four. You have four units of suffering. But now let's say you've got that anxious thought, same anxious thought, it's a four, but you start freaking out about it and you start trying to make it go away and you start saying it's a bad thought and I shouldn't have bad thoughts. And what does this say about me? And oh my God, why isn't this bad thought going away? And what does it mean for what I'm supposed to do later today? Well, now you've got eight units of resistance and eight times four is 32. So you just went from four units of suffering, intrusive thought to 32 units of suffering simply because you resisted it. Uh, and I think that it is one of these bizarro paradoxes that I wish I would have learned earlier because it would have saved me a lot of suffering, which is it's okay to have negative thoughts, feelings, moods. It's completely normal to. They are going to hurt. You don't have to like them. But the best way to make them go away is to try to not make them go away. It's like the ultimate paradox. Yeah, yeah. I think that is so true. I also think that is very difficult. It's really great in theory and very hard in practice. And I wonder if we shouldn't take a moment to try to share some of our own experience and how we've navigated that. Because I think if someone's in it right now and they're hearing that, it's a little like, I, I get it intellectually, but on a visceral level, I'm in, I'm in the middle of a hurricane over here and I don't know what to do about that. And I don't know that I have any good advice for, for someone who's in that spot. I think the one thing that has helped me over time, I mean, is just time and experience and recognizing that the pain does transform. And again, I, I worry that's not super helpful to someone who's in it, but, but I have three, I, I, yeah. I have three okay. helpful things for someone yeah. who's in it. Yeah. First, a mindfulness meditation practice, this is the entire point, is to sit and pay attention to your breath, your body, the sounds around you, whatever it is that you choose as your anchor. You will have a million thoughts, feelings, and urges, and you learn to watch them instead of fuse with them. Mm -hmm. If you can watch a thought, feeling, or urge instead of be the thought, feeling, or urge, you have a choice whether or not to engage in it or just to let it be there. And all meditation is doing is strengthening that muscle, just that space, the space between thought, feeling, and your awareness of it. So meditation is like the gym workout, right? Like you train in the gym to be really good at basketball, and it's not one-to-one -one transfer, but it's pretty dang good for specific skills. The second thing. Can I add something on that really quick? 
Yeah, do it. It's hard. It, it can't be, oh, I have this problem and now I want to address it with meditation. You need a like you need a long-term practice because the rewards are not immediate. Some there are some immediate rewards, but really that tolerance comes from sustained long-term practice I've found. And so it may not help you today, but if you start today, it will help you at some point in the future. I think that's right with one one exception in my own experience. And, and this could just be um, splitting hairs, but I think that once you, once you meditate for a certain amount of time, you kind of gain insight that you can't unsee. Yes, yes. And then your practice doesn't have to be as consistent. Now, yes, you yes. lose something for not having your practices consistent, but you can't unsee that insight. Like I can remember the series of formal meditation practices I had probably about a year and a half after I've been meditating every day where like it really became clear to me that I am a canvas under my thoughts and feelings and my thoughts and feelings, I can get pulled into them and they can hook me, but yeah. I'm not them. Yes. And once I had that experience, I can always remember. It's kind of how like Michael Pollan talks about psychedelics in his book. Like one of the purported benefits of psychedelics, I've never tried psychedelics, is that you can remember the experience when you're in a jam. Mm -hmm. And just remembering can give you some freedom. And I think at a certain point in one's meditation practice, for me, it was a year and a half of basically daily practice. You could argue that's not very long. You could argue that's very long. Depends on your perspective. That you can't unsee that insight. Yes. The second but, thing is what, just having words for this kind of stuff. Go ahead. You were going to add to my first thing still. Well, I was just going to say what I more meant is for somebody who's listening. I can make this concrete. I have, I know somebody who struggles with anger. And every time they're angry, they like I'm all, I'm sometimes around them when they're angry and they're like, "I don't want to I don't want to breathe deep right now." And I'm like, "Yes, well, I know that. I mean, it can help you in the moment. Box breathing, 5 seconds in, hold, 5 seconds out, hold. That oh, can Oh, the help. Huberman podcast now. Yeah, yeah, but but that can help in the moment. But I always say to this person, I, yes, it may not help you right now, but if you were to start a meditation practice today, there will be a moment six months from now where you're going to notice that it is helping. And so I'm just, if anyone's listening to this and they're like, feel really down and they feel like it may not help them today resolve a crisis, I more meant like, know that if you start a practice today, you will see benefits in the future. And I totally agree with you. Once you see those benefits, they stick with you. Right. And, and that is, that's probably why our podcast isn't as popular as the Huberman Lab because you can sit there and have these tools, the physiological sigh, the breathing out of one nostril and into the other nostril, the box breathing, all of those tools. But once you're using those tools, you're pretty late in the game. And by definition, by using those tools, you're trying to make the thing go away, which yes. often makes it worse. It's, it's, so it's I like don't sunscreen. Those, yeah, I, even worse, because I think sunscreen's effective. And those tools, they're effective sometimes, but I think what they're doing is they're overlaying the pattern of, I can't tolerate this, when what you actually want to train is tolerance. You yeah. want to be able to have the same thought or feeling and not need to do the psychological or physiological sigh. Yeah. Because the physiological side is labeling that feeling as bad and trying to make it go away. The next step is just being like, yeah, I'm in the grocery store and I'm getting really angry. Okay. Yeah. I don't yeah. have to react to this. Um, all right. On my list of three things. The second thing is just having, <laughs> having words for this, right? Like in the West, we do label things. And just by being able to have frameworks that can help that when you're in the thick of a situation, you can recall, oh, 
know, I can watch the movie. I don't have to be in it. Or I can be under the waterfall, not getting poured on. Or I don't have to judge my thoughts or feelings. And a negative thought or feeling is not the same thing as a negative action. Uh, that's really helpful. And then the third thing is self-talk. In just the words, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. That is it. So your mind is racing about a presentation, about a job that you don't know if you should stay in, you just got laid off, about a health diagnosis, about a health diagnosis that you're scared that you have, about an upcoming race, about a relationship challenge, on and on and on. And you can just say, maybe, maybe not. Because the minute you reassure yourself and you say, oh no, that would never happen, well then your brain's gonna become a what if machine. Well, what if you're wrong? What if this is the one time? What if it actually does happen? If you tell yourself, oh, this is for sure going to happen, well, then you can spiral into despair. You know, this is like you look at a mole in the mirror and you become convinced you have stage four skin cancer. You don't want to say, oh, yeah, I have stage four skin cancer because then you're going to freak out. But what you could say is maybe, maybe not. And then your brain is going to say, well, what do you mean, maybe, maybe not? Like, I need an answer. You say, no, maybe, maybe not. Maybe you do need an answer, maybe you don't. And you just walk off the battlefield. Um, the metaphor here is, um, and I don't know, I hope this isn't, um, this isn't like not politically correct. And I, I don't know the other way to say it. So for all of my, uh, Chinese brothers and sisters out there, please don't be offended. Chinese finger trap. That's like the term that people use, right? Where you put one finger in each end in wrestling with a thought or a feeling is like getting stuck in that. But the minute you say, maybe, maybe not you loosen and you get out of the trap. And I really think like that's the power of maybe, maybe not. And when you first do it, your brain is going to be like, what do you mean? Like it's going to, you're going to get more anxious. Like, what do you mean? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I have skin cancer. Maybe not. And then just, I promise you, just stick with it. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. And eventually your brain just realizes like you're not DTF. Like you are not here to play that game. And it's going to start serving up other thoughts yeah. and feelings. Yeah. There's a great two thoughts on that. There's a great parable about that and I'm going to get it wrong. So please, um, be kind, uh, listeners, but it's a parable. Basically there's a, a man and one day he discovers he has a farm and all these horses, wild horses show up on his farm. And now he has horses and, and all the villagers are like, that's great. Now you have horses. And he says, maybe, maybe not. Then his son comes out one day and rides the horse and he falls off the horse and breaks his leg. And the villagers say, oh my gosh, that's so terrible. Your son broke his leg. And he says, the farmer says, maybe, maybe not. Then there's a war and the, and the army's coming through and they're conscripting soldiers and they show up at his farm and they would have taken his son, but his son can't go because his leg is broken because he fell off, he fell off the horse and the villagers go, that's so wonderful that your son was not able, was not conscripted to go to war. And he says, maybe, maybe not. And there's one more thing that happens. I can't remember. The point is we, we don't know how our circumstances are going to play out. And that's not to say it's easy to get out of our brains, but our brains are constantly trying to impose certainty on things that are just chaos and unfolding. And I think that parable really crystallizes that for me. Um, the other thing that I've found helpful and it's, it's maybe a little bit, it's, it's a little bit nutty. So you have to bear with me, but um, oftentimes when, you're anxious and you don't want to be anxious. You're feeling aversive to the anxiety, right? You want it to go away. And I read somewhere once somebody was like, try to make yourself in those moments more anxious. 
Because what it does is it actually flips the script. So instead of being like, I want the anxiety to go away, if you try to make yourself angrier or uh, more anxious, all of a sudden the aversion has gone and it can kind of cut through in a way that's pretty powerful. I love that. Yeah. It's like lean it, lean into the thing. Yeah. Um, and, and then stop, stop resisting it. And that gets to the root of all of this. And this is true for obviously for clinical anxiety, but this is true for subclinical, just like getting stuck in your own head. Yeah. Uh, insomnia. The worst thing to do is to worry that you're not going to be able to fall asleep. Like nothing is worse for sleeping than measuring your sleep and worrying about it. Um, yeah. Cause you're not relaxing, like you're not relaxing into it yeah. and it gets back to being in transition in a two point game. If you're worried about it, you're not going to be as good as if you just relax into it. Yeah. The other last thing that's been helpful for me too is, and has been exercise. I think there's a really cool moment where I, I have often found that uncomfortable feelings emotionally are hard for me to navigate because I'm scared of them, to be honest. But physical discomfort is a way of learning to be with hard feelings that can then translate to navigating emotionally difficult feelings. So I'll make that concrete, which is like, sometimes I'll be doing an exercise. It could be a hard track workout, or it could be like a wall sit or a, a leg lift. And in those moments where I, and this took me a long time to get here, but like, in those moments where I'm like, I want to quit so badly, I hurt so much, and you should listen to your body. I'm not saying don't do that. I do often now have the thought of like, oh, this is a playground. You can now play with discomfort, and you can use what you learn here, whether the pain transforms, or you can tolerate it for longer than you think, or it goes away. You can take that lesson and then apply it to emotions. And I found that like that unlocks was a whole big unlock for me. Like I can use physical discomfort as a way to experiment being with hard feelings that can then help me navigate emotionally uncomfortable feelings. So to wrap up and bring it back where we started, you can even do this on a one rep deadlift. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that you do this, because I've done it is a really heavy deadlift. There is nerves about it just because like, it's just a ton of freaking weight. And what often happens, and this is true, even with like world-class lifters, which I am not, is you rush the lift because you're nervy and like, you just want to get the weight moving. Like you just want to get it over with in learning to not rush the lift to stay with it. Cause what happens when you rush the lift is you can like jerk the bar off the ground and psychologically that feels good. Cause like, you're just like, I'm just going to pull this up and get it over with, but you're never going to make the lift because you're jerking. You're not pulling from a solid foundation. And, and if you don't have decent form, you could get yourself injured. Whereas a big deadlift requires the opposite. It requires being really patient with the lift and it can feel like eight seconds before the bar starts moving off the floor, but you just stay with the lift and you stay braced and you don't rush and you're patient. And then suddenly the bar starts to move and it moves fast and it feels good. And I just think like that is, that is such an important life skill that at the first sign of nerves or apprehension, don't rush the lift, especially Ooh, this is good. I'm tying it all together, Clay. Especially if you've done the work, if you've done the training, if you have conscious competence. So not rushing the lift, and now we're in metaphorical, whatever the lift is, that only works if you have a lot of reps locking in and being in solid form and you know something about what it's like not to rush the lift. 
So you've got to do that work first, whether that's on the meditation cushion, whether that's in medical residency, whether that's apprenticing, whether that's writing your first 48 stories and getting them all rejected. Like you cannot fast forward to the not rushing the lift phase without putting in the reps and the skill development. But then once you get there, that's what Mark Epstein said in opening about being an adult is having those experiences, trusting in your training and then not rushing the lift. So good. So good. And if I can extend that metaphor even further at the, at the, at the risk of killing it, if you don't make the lift, you get to try again. And that's the whole practice of meditation, right? Is your thoughts stray and you come back, you're back again. You begin again, you begin again, you begin again, you try to stay. And when you stray, you begin again. And like, yeah, it's wonderful. Clay, this was great. I think we should begin again next week because um, I want to rush the outro here because I feel like we uh, we just went into some potentially esoteric waters. <laughs> and my guess is we've still got 95% of listeners with us. I hope so. We'll see. We'll see. Let us know if you guys enjoyed this. Yeah, uh, If you want more of stuff know. like was this, this. Was this just... Or- <laughs> Was this unconscious competence or was this actually <laughs> unconscious incompetence, listeners? And um, you tell us, but it, it, whatever happened, there was not a lot of thinking. So I feel good about it, but maybe this was just unconscious incompetence. Yep. Thoughts Without a Thinker, another Mark Epstein book, which we will discuss on the next episode of The Growth Equation. No, this is wonderful. If you guys want to check out the book, um, Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart by Mark Epstein. All of his books are great. Brad, this was a joy. This was really a joy. Play. The pleasure is mutual. Um, don't rush the lift, my man. Love it. Love it.